One focus, one subject. Welcome to The Real Story, the podcast that brings together global experts to explain one issue shaping the news. BBC World Service podcasts are supported by advertising. There are lots of reasons why humans can be considered dreadful drivers. They go to sleep, they get aggressive, they drink alcohol, they take drugs, they talk on their mobiles, they get yelled at by their children uh, and all these distractions and uh, therefore they're not great at driving. But how realistic is it to think about driverless cars and indeed would they be any safer since they avoid all those human problems? Uh, This week's guest producer is Jonathan Fenton Fisher, the owner, I know, of a Mustang, which is quite unusual in the UK, uh, and not many people have them. Uh, not and, yet, they will. They will. Uh, I'm sure they will. And uh, you chose this topic. Tell us why. I have had an obsession, I have to be honest, for many decades with an old TV show called Night Rider, where the car would drive itself from, from the 1980s. And the Hoff would jump in. The Hoff would jump in, indeed. Um, and rescue someone, was it? Yeah. There'd, there'd be damsels in distress, all the usual stuff in California. And... I I wasn't so keen on the Hoff. I was more keen on the car. It would talk to you. It was like a friend. It would... Uh, oh, it had turbo mode, so it would just, like, jump over huge ravines. And uh, and you could talk into your watch, and it would pick you up from where, wherever you needed to. So are you hoping... You know, would you dream of a day that you could you know, you'd be at home having, I don't know, breakfast or something, and say to your Mustang... Mustang. Mustang. Yeah, that's right. Uh, say to your Mustang, uh, come and pick me up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm hoping for a software upgrade from Ford in the next, I don't know, five to ten years, maybe. There you go. Driverless cars, this week's programme. (laughs) This week, the city of Pittsburgh has started allowing semi-autonomous taxis to be used by the ride-sharing company Uber, and we'll be speaking to the mayor a little later on. This is Owen Bennett-Jones, and on NewsHour Extra this week driverless cars. They're not quite as science fictiony as they sound. The Pittsburgh cars, for example, will actually have two people in them, a driver who can take over in case the software fails, and an engineer who can take over, I guess, if the driver fails. So not quite as uh, autonomous as they seem, hence the phrase semi-autonomous. But this is still the development phase. Many billions of dollars, though, are being spent on making cars drive themselves, and many scientists and their backers believe it really is the next big thing. It's an idea, in fact, that's been around for over half a century. In the private motor port, the family car is automatically washed, dried and refueled. As father chooses the route in advance on a push-button selector, electronics take over complete control. Progress can be accurately checked on a synchronized scanning map. With no driving responsibility, the family relaxes together. En route, business conferences are conducted by television. On entering the city, the family separates. Father to his office, mother and son to the shopping centre. Well, there we are. That's how it was meant to be. And uh, from Disney's 1958 vision of the future to the real thing, 2016, just outside London. So here we are. We're in this semi-autonomous, what the journalists tend to call driverless, but what the companies insist are semi-autonomous vehicles. It's a Tesla. And we're about to go on to a motorway, a highway, just south of London. And then it will kick in the automated features will kick in and as long as I keep my hands on the wheel 
it will pretty much drive itself apparently. Now earlier I spoke to a Tesla spokesperson about the vehicle and how it works and so on and she said they are selling increasing numbers. Well, they like the fact that the car is safe. It's a driver assistance system. It enables a more relaxing drive. So I've driven many miles on autopilot. And you really do arrive at your destination more relaxed because you don't have to be as alert as you would if you were just driving the car on your own. So there we are. That was uh, the reasons why people like them. Now, I'm on the motorway and the icons have come up on my screen saying I can engage the autopilot system. So... I just have to press this thing twice. And there it goes. So it's now driving itself. Can I come out to a truck in front of me? I want to overtake it. So I've now indicated right, and it just does it. It is slightly unnerving, I must say. One of the problems with this, of course, is that, you know, there has been an accident uh, back in May in the United States of Florida. And I did ask the Tesla spokesperson about that because clearly that was a software problem where the sky was mistaken for a truck. So... How safe is it? Oh my god, I'm now going, it's now breaking. Yeah. So I was going, just before we hear from her, I was, yeah, you know, someone drew in front of me and it just, it just breaks for you. Yeah, anyway, let, let's hear about the safety. Well, we always say that the system is a driver assistance system, so you're supposed to be in control of the vehicle at all times, ready to make a decision if you feel you need to. We have also just released a further update in version 8, which we believe would have avoided that, that particular accident. But you can see why people might be anxious about that. I mean, someone died. Uh, yes, I can, but if you use the system correctly, then um, there the, the, the should be no incidents where you can't take control of the wheel and brake for the car. And how much are these? They start at just below $70,000 in the US, and then with the autopilot upgrade, that would be another $3,000. And around the world, you sold how many? Uh, 160000 since 2012. Well, there we are. That gives you uh, just a a little impression of what it's like to not drive one of these things. And uh, our panel today, Professor Mary Cummings, Director of the Humans and Autonomy Lab at Duke University in the United States. She was one of the US Navy's first female fighter pilots, call sign Missy, I'm told, and gave evidence to a US Senate committee hearing on the road readiness of self-driving cars. Here in London, we have Christian Wolmar, British transport journalist, so interested in London's transport, that he ran for mayor at one point. And joining us from The Hague in the Netherlands, Professor Bart van Arum, who is Professor of Transport Modelling at the Delft University of Technology. So I have to say, my impression was, having driven that thing, that it was much less driverless than I had imagined. You know, you you have to stay very engaged to make the thing work. Uh, Professor Cummings, you gave evidence on precisely that point. We're nowhere near a driverless car, are we? No, we are in this place, what we call driver assist, where the technologies are coming along that seem like they might be driverless cars. And that's what you're seeing in the Tesla, but we're not even close to having completely driverless cars. Right. And with that one I tried where it's like cruise control with a lot of extra features, you could put it like that. Is is that as far as it's got or are there some that are more advanced? No, I think in terms of lane keeping and passing, that's about the state of the art. And Tesla's not the only company that's doing this. They're just the only company who's actively putting it into the hands of users right now. And so, well, let's, let's just ask you, Professor Bart van Arum, how long do you think it will be, I mean, this is the key question, I guess, before they get to the stage where they are genuinely driverless? Yeah, having really driverless vehicles 
Actually, it's already there. There are a couple of pilots where on completely segregated roads, driverless vehicles can function completely automatically. They're still supervised from a traffic control center, but that technology has been there for more than 15 years already. What a lot of people are expecting that maybe this technology could work everywhere, and uh, this just is not the case. So having these vehicles... Well, in U.S., sometimes they call it the, the pet to the vet scenario. So your dog needs to go to the vet and uh, the car just takes your dog to the vet. Um, this is very, very far future. There's a big difference between vehicles on public roads and vehicles that are in um, special designated areas. OK, so you both seem to agree on that. And yet Christian Walmart here in London, I think Ford is talking about a car without a steering wheel by 2021 which is not far off. I mean, that that doesn't sound terrible. Yes, uh, Google is also talking about the idea of having a car without a steering wheel. In other words, it's called level five in the uh, the technology, which means that it's not possible for the human to drive the car. Just take us... This is quite useful to know this. There's there's level three and level five and so on. Talk us through that. Uh, Well, essentially, level one is is normal car stretching up to uh, level three, where you have uh, quite a lot of autonomy, but the driver still needs to be there. Level four, where it has a lot of driverless capability, but you still just about need somebody there. To level five, where it's not possible to drive it. And and this this is what is often a confusion in the eyes of the public public where they're talking about driverless cars which is an enormous technological jump from where we are at the moment and let me say I I think this is very dangerous I think that the public is in danger being fooled into the idea that driverless cars are coming within two or three years when actually speaking to industry people 2030 is the very earliest you might get any at all and even then there are doubts about it. Well that might be overhyped but it's not dangerous is it? Well it is dangerous because uh, first of all you might get transport policy actually being geared towards the idea that we're going to have these uh, driverless cars. Uh, The second thing is that people might start treating their driver assisted cars as driverless. And this is what happened to the accident you refer to in the introduction uh, in Florida, where this guy who's a great enthusiast for uh, Tesla cars was actually put on the automatic and was watching a Harry Potter movie when the car smashed into a, a truck and tried to get underneath the truck because it, had, it was a white truck and it hadn't realised that it was a truck. Yeah, let's bring in Professor Cummings. I mean, that accident did happen in the United States. They say they've fixed the software, but it does indicate just how not driverless these these machines are. Right. And so this is a classic human psychological problem that we've known about for years. And it really kind of emerged uh, many years ago when these two Northwest pilots overflew Minneapolis and they were basically lost for 45 minutes while they were playing on their laptops. People get bored in highly automated environments. And so this is the real danger that these cars are pretty good. You know, they're not perfect, but they are pretty good long enough for a human to mentally check out, which we know from research quite clearly happens about 20 minutes into a long-distance drive. And so the humans are not going to pay attention, even if they don't have a laptop, even if they didn't have a cell phone, they would actually just drift off into daydreamy-like thought. 
And because the car is performing pretty well, they don't feel the need that they have to attend to it. And this is, you know, we're talking about drivers who are not pilots, who do not get training, who can be anywhere from 16 to 96 driving these cars. And so by lulling them into this false sense of security, we're just setting people up to have more accidents. So, So actually you agree with Christian about the danger point? It's very dangerous. I think that it's actually, you know, I have been calling along with uh, many other agencies in the United States, Tesla needs to turn autopilot off because you're only setting people up for a crash. First of all, they're not autopilots, right? They're not autopilots like they are in a plane, but people hear the word autopilot and they think they can just check out. And when you've got complacency set into a system like this, you're only asking for these kind of accidents. The Joshua Brown case in the United States, you know, this this wasn't unforeseeable. I mean, I foresaw it. I told the Senate that it was going to happen, and then it happened. Yeah, but I mean, having said that, there are lots of accidents anyway, and humans are terrible drivers well, in many ways. Well, can Tesla, I, can I Tesla quite a... I'm glad we can have some, some discussion here because, uh, frankly, I tend to disagree. Yes, with new technology, we can have new dangerous uh, situations, and uh, I think we must do everything to prevent that. But what we don't see is all the accidents that the new technology is preventing. So... When you look at it statistically, it may very well be that uh, roads are becoming safer because of these uh, vehicles. They detect um, pedestrians, they detect cyclists, they brake more timely than a human driver would do. Uh, The system does not become tired and and also the system does not become distracted. Think, for instance, of uh, loads of people that are using uh, uh, smartphones and all kinds of other equipment in in the vehicle. That's just not safe. And technology can help us to make this uh, this safer. And actually, we don't have a firm idea on the statistics on uh, on that yet, because still very little of these vehicles are driving on the road, and it's different to get these uh, these statistics. Yeah, I mean that's precisely uh, the point. I mean, Google, for example, is uh, putting out the idea that its cars are safer, and they are driverless, but they have a test driver in there. But the point that Google don't actually say is that, first of all, very often the test driver has intervened to avoid accidents, so therefore that uh, changes their statistics. And secondly, they did actually have a crash when the test driver decided not to intervene and uh, one of their cars smashed into a bus. Now, there's two dangers here. One is, uh, as we've just talked about, the fact that people uh, might be lulled into a sense of security and uh, therefore lose attention and be de-skilled. And and the second one is that these cars might show up very well in the statistics on nice highways where there's not many cars and there's a dual carriageway and it's all very safe, but they might be not safer uh, in dangerous uh, town environments where there's lots of junctions and lots of people walking in front of them and the like. Well, I'd like to jump in here and say I'm not advocating that we get rid of all the elements of these systems. I am very much pro-safety. Yes, humans are terrible drivers, probably worse in the U.S. than in other countries, I think. Um, But that doesn't mean that we should just give them this technology, which is what I consider to be sloppy engineering. In the case of Tesla, the radar and the camera vision systems had clear and known blind spots. They were put in 
the manual. The manual even warned drivers that these blind spots existed. And if you know that your system has a blind spot and that it, for example, cannot detect a static object while moving along at a highway, and we see static objects on highways all the time, if you know that, then you shouldn't be giving people that capability. You should fix the problem. Let me just ask you about a couple of sort of factual points. Who can help me with who's making these things? We've heard about Tesla, Google's been mentioned, uh, but some of the main car companies are going into this, aren't they, as well? I think they all are. So they all um, are. <laughs> yeah. the big ones, the, uh, the Germans, Mercedes, BMW, they have been um, front runners in this. Uh, Toyota has been a front runner. Nissan, Ford is now also, GM has been uh, classically uh, active in this. What we now see, and this is very interesting, is that companies from Silicon Valley are entering this, this arena. So uh, Google is entering, Tesla is entering, and there's talk of, uh, of, of Apple and Microsoft doing these, uh, these type of studies. This is really interesting because in the traditional automotive uh, industry, testing is a very careful process. And before they release a product on the market, uh, they do uh, a lot of pre-market testing. Whereas in the, the um, information technology industry, there's much more testing in the field. And, and in my view, this is something that uh, Tesla has been doing. So they have a better release and they uh, say, uh, OK, go out in the field, be careful. It's better technology. It's not mature net. And of course, this is what, what can happen. So I, I do think that we need to uh, learn from, uh, from this. That's a very interesting point. There's a sort of different culture in these companies. Just the second sort of factual thing. On the systems that exist, one of the key weaknesses from what I've been reading is, you know, like bad weather, heavy snow, mist, uh, these kind of things, making it more difficult for the the sensors on these cars to pick up what's around them. Is that a fair point? That's right, yes. Google, for example, have found uh, difficulty with uh, fog, with uh, snow, and... uh, Talking to uh, people in the industry, I understand that heavy rain is a a big uh, barrier. So again, it it raises the question of we're nowhere near 100% driverless. And and that's a point that I think has been missed somewhat. Because if you're 99% driverless, it doesn't give you the advantages that Google, uh, for example, uh, put forward as saying, we can liberate parking lots because, you know, you won't need parking lots in towns anymore. The advantage is to only come with 100%. Professor Cummings, perhaps you can comment on this. We'll we'll just hear a bit of tape and then we'll get your remark on it because it's it's addressing this issue of whether people want their cars to drive themselves because, you know, a lot of people like driving and may just feel more comfortable being in control of their vehicle. And uh, Dodge, US car company, sort of played on that feeling in a commercial in, well, it was just five years ago, 2011, for one of their cars, positioning it in the market as an anti-self-driving car. I am the GGL 4000, optimised to make your transportation safe and enjoyable. Please enter on the passenger side. Please enter on the passenger side. Please replace my head. Robots can take our food, our clothes, and our homes. But they will never take our cars. Introducing the 2011 Dodge Charger, leader of the human resistance. There we are, Professor Cummings, a very American advert. Absolutely, I love it. And, you know, I do think that this is an interesting conundrum that I that I'm seeing 
people in America want it both ways. We want the coolness of the technology that drives itself, but we also want, you know, we are invoking that cowboy image. And I, I think that we will eventually get to a driverless car, a mostly driverless car world. And in fact, I actually think relatively soon you'll see some test markets where cars are driving themselves under, uh, you know, conditions where there's lots of extra sensors put in the road so that we have much more control than we would in a real driverless car situation. But we will get to the day, one day there will be driver parks in America where you take your real car and you drive it just for fun. And uh, But that will be the only place that you can drive right. them for fun. Well, I must, I'm interested in what you said about the roads, because my having only just tried one of these things for the first time, uh, yesterday, I, uh, it it did seem to me that they'll have to adapt the roads to make this safe, and they have to have sensors in the roads and sort of marking points in the roads for these cars to recognise, and then maybe they could drive along them. Does that make sense? Absolutely. We're just because of all the problems with the sensors and weather. You know, it's one thing to do a driverless car trip in California where there's clean clean lines on the road and no weather problems. But, uh, you know, I actually think the real test challenge is a winter in Boston or, you know, a winter in London. If you can have a car, you know, operate under all the conditions that it would expect to operate in in London for six months over the winter, then I'm a bigger believer. Okay, let's just hear quickly from Utonomy. This is uh, the CEO and co-founder of it. This is Carl Yanema. And so basically, this is a company based in the States and Singapore, and it makes the software to, to, to build self-driving cars. And they've actually uh, beaten Uber to it because we're talking about Pittsburgh, and we're going to hear from the mayor of Pittsburgh later. But actually, a couple of weeks earlier than the Pittsburgh Uber thing, these people in um, Newtonomy started semi-autonomous taxis in Singapore, and uh, they've been talking about how passengers react. People in general, when you get into a driverless car, go through a transition from being somewhat nervous, apprehensive, terrified, you know, choose your descriptor, to very quickly accepting the technology and, um, you know, quite frankly, becoming bored <laughs> in short order. One other interesting thing we, we found is that people tend to, um, I think, gain comfort with the technology by assigning it human-like qualities. Uh, we've heard people talk about the car and say things like, well, it, it drives like my mother, <laughs> which we took as a compliment. Uh, we had a couple in the car who actually named the car. They named it Harry, and they were cheering it on when it would do a particularly clever maneuver in traffic. I think this is how people come to grips with this very complex technology that is playing a, a significant role in their life at that moment. They want it to behave in a way that they would behave. And so the result of that, what we learn from that is, we strongly emphasize developing our technologies that it drives the way a human would drive in any given traffic situation. And that's quite hard to do. So that's uh, Carl Yanema from Newtonomy. And Christian Walmart, that speaks very much to the point Professor Cummings was making from the United States, isn't it? That there's a sort of confusion in people. They want this and they don't want it in a way. Um, yes, absolutely. Um, uh, talking to people in the AA, they've done a, a survey, the Automobile Association uh, in the UK, and they've done a survey of their members. And something like two thirds of them still uh, remarkably enjoy driving at times. So uh, actually going for a driverless car not only has the challenge of uh, it, it making people feel safe, uh, but it also takes away what that Dodge advert suggests, which is the, the ability and, and sometimes pleasure of, of driving. And 
the issue here is also often confused because Google suggests that not only will we get driverless cars, but we'll have communal cars which are all shared, sort of rather boring pods that uh, we, we will just whistle up when we need one and then we'll dump it when we arrive there, which is, which is a further confusion of the idea that because uh, you know, that is something that is yet one more step that we'd have to overcome, get, getting rid of our own cars where you might be keeping your golf clubs or, or you have got your radio station uh, tuned in and so on and, and having a pod instead. Welcome back to News Hour Extra. These computer things are just a waste of time anyway. <clears throat> oh, present company excluded, of course. Kid, go to manual, we're stopping. Really? Why? Is there a young lady in the vicinity? How'd you know that? Really, Michael? You're so predictable. Well, there we are. For people of a certain age, I'll recognise that. Uh, the car that drove itself on a TV series back in the 80s. It was called Kit, and the actor was the Hoff, uh, Knight Rider. And on NewsHour Extra this week, we're talking about driverless cars or semi-autonomous ones. And uh, we've got Professor Mary Cummings from Duke University, British journalist Christian Wolmar, and Professor Bart van Arum from the Delft University of Technology in the Netherlands. And as I mentioned at the start of the programme, the city of Pittsburgh is at the forefront of this technology in the United States. It's allowing Uber to use semi-autonomous cars to take members of the public around the city. And I've been speaking with the mayor of Pittsburgh. It's William Peduto. Uh, Why Uber and why Pittsburgh? Pittsburgh has a rich history, and I would say probably on a global basis, the strongest history in robotics. And Uber understood that, and they also saw the hilly topography and the challenges of our bridges and four seasons as an opportunity really to pilot if autonomous vehicles could become part of a larger public program. I think it's fair to say some people are a bit surprised at how much leeway Uber have got in Pittsburgh. Can you, can you tell us a bit about the relationship with the company in the city? Because they're, they're giving money to the university? Do they, do they give money to the city? Uh, they employ now, uh, I guess, close to 600 people, where a year ago there were no jobs in this field. They've recruited the best and brightest from around the world and have been able to retain the students who attend our local universities to stay in Pittsburgh. And they've asked for no government assistance in any government money. Right, which is interesting, isn't it? I mean, I'm sure as a mayor, you, you, I, mean, I, I hope you think this is a fair question. You know, you're trying to attract investment to your city to work for your city. And these corporations have so much money and such power now that they, they hold the whip hand, don't they? Well, it's, it's an interesting philosophy because I'm, I'm a pretty progressive Democrat, which means in the United States I'm pretty far to the left. And I do believe that government's role is for the betterment of people. And I also understand, having lived in a city, that the economic collapse was greater than during the Great Depression. And watching all my friends and my family have to move because heavy industry left this city. That innovation is part of our future. That we've been able to build a city that now has Uber and Google and Microsoft and Intel and Apple and Tata and Bosch and Facebook and Oculus and so many other companies because they understand that what is being produced at the universities, that's where the forge is now like it used to be in the steel mill. And what CMU was doing in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s 
Today has created a global industry where Uber is now the partner taking it to the next stage. And we can do that in all fields of robotics, all fields of technology. And from post-industrial towns that saw loss and decimation through deindustrialization, a phoenix can rise from those ashes. And that was uh, William Peduto, who's the mayor of Pittsburgh. Let's bring uh, Professor Bart van Aramin from the Netherlands. You heard him talking there. You can see he needs the investment. And these Uber cars at the moment do have people inside them checking it's all working fine. But do you think that there is a temptation of the authorities to be very easy on the regulations to try and attract this kind of corporate interest in their city? What I see happening in, in Pittsburgh from the item that we just just heard Actually, that's happening in a lot of other cities at this moment where cities like to attract the industry and do testing on these vehicles and hope that it will develop more economic activities in their region. And, of course, in the USA, what we've seen is that different member states have made different regulations for testing automated vehicles. So these arrangements are in place. I'm not sure what Pittsburgh has arranged on these testing. So what I've heard from the item, actually, is that it's a pilot, so they're not doing a real, real service. So, um, yeah, but it's in the real world. I mean, you know, it's, in, it's, it's on the city roads. Well, yes, I'd like to least... jump in here and say, um, you know... it. What Uber is doing is they are giving free rides to people with two engineers in the front. Google's been doing this for more than five years, and it is a test market. They are gathering test data, but this is the safest Uber ride you will ever be in because you have two people up front who are really paying attention to what the car is doing. And so I don't see this as a major step forward, and I also don't see it as anything even remotely unsafe. You're more safe in this situation. Okay, and what's your general view on regulations? Do you think, I mean, I know they're uneven, which must raise issues in different places. Uh, I mean, do you think, Professor Cummings, they're adequate? So in the United States, I think what we have is a patchwork of regulations, as you sort of referenced before, it's state by state. And it's a problem because it is uneven. And this is actually why we have a federal agency called the National Highway Transportation and Safety Administration, who has been virtually silent on these issues. And there's a larger problem, too, that these technologies are very complicated. They're actually very difficult to test. And the testing programs that need to occur for these cars are actually more like what you would see for airplanes than you would see for regular cars. And so we need federal involvement here to set test standards, to set the kinds of acceptable certification tests that such complicated autonomy should produce, but we're not getting it. And I do think that this is because of something called regulatory capture, where the our regulation agencies are so tightly intertwined with the car companies that they're not going to be able to do this job. Right. And Christian Wilmer, it must be the case that these, these companies are paying you know, the, the talent, a lot of money to develop this stuff, and, and, and the government won't be able to attract the same sort of people to, to do the regulations. Yes, there's, there's a real race going on here, which is uh, partly the reason for all this hype, which is that you know, every country is seeing itself as the potential uh, test bed for this technology and therefore the ones that are going to be developing it. Here in the UK, the government's put about £20 million into various uh, schemes such as uh, some sort of pods in Milton Keynes and uh, another type of driverless unit in Greenwich and so on. And it's, it's actually funding these initiatives because the government says, we must absolutely do this and 
we're going to try and create the easiest legislation for these companies so that they come here. And there's a real danger here that, uh, you know, you create very lax uh, legislation, as Professor Cummings was suggesting there, and then we might have an accident or two or three, and we end up kind of realizing that the legislation is not fit for purpose, and we've allowed these companies uh, to put people in danger in their rush to be the first to develop it. Let, let's let's move on may to another. May I add a, a bit on that? Go for it. Yeah, so I have been responsible for some projects in which we tested driverless vehicles ourselves, and in all these cases, uh, still. Always there has to be an experimenter or a uh, somebody who's capable of intervening. Uh, there's extensive testing that the uh, way of to intervene with the vehicle really works. So in my experience, the testing regulations that I've experienced are quite strict. There's always an expert driver behind the wheel that's able to, to intervene. Yeah, um, so, so there's, no, there's no regulatory provision yet for a driverless car, actually. Uh, not in, not in that sense. Although the example I mentioned earlier in the in the, in the program, when you have a specific infrastructure on which it works, that's a that's a different story. So well, yeah. Uh, but I was thinking about that. I mean, that's basically called a train, isn't it? I mean, you know what I mean. I mean, if you if you if you if you have a special road built for it and a thing on wheels moves down it, it's it's very like a train. Well, that certainly could be the case, but you could also think of the image of driverless parts driving everywhere in the city. If you would replace that by defining a specific network in the city that you would designate these vehicles to drive on and to make sure that on these parts that localization would probably be supported, that other traffic participants are informed about it, that it's not too crowded, actually in those cases I think it could work. But uh, in the UK uh, the government is talking about an experiment quite soon of a train of lorries, right? So the first lorry might be driven and then you have half a dozen other lorries and uh, they all follow the first lorry and they'll be driven on motorways. And we talked about that, or the government's talked about that, in terms of doing it on public motorways. And so far that's just an announcement and we haven't seen any details of that, but the the lorries behind would be driverless. Yeah, that would take it forward. Let's let's move on. Uh, Professor Cummings, we haven't heard from you for a bit, so perhaps you can address this issue that's come up. Uh, in relation to driverless cars, which is the the ethics of it, and you know trolleyology, as they as they call it in philosophy, what happens when the car has to decide whether to crash into a wall or crash into someone crossing the road, and and do we want to program that into a car? Would people buy a car that might kill them? Uh, there are difficult ethical issues, aren't there? I think that there are difficult ethical issues. And I applaud, even Google has come forth and actually basically given you their algorithm that they're going to hit static obstacles, go for buildings first, and then maybe other vehicles. And, you know, if there's no other choice than pedestrians, Um, I, I think it would be hard for all of us to dictate a policy that everyone would think it's fair, that everyone would buy off on. But I think what's actually more critical in this argument is a discussion of just how bad the sensors are. Can these cars actually detect buildings and know that they're buildings, right? So I think we can all agree, I would rather be in a car that's going to hit a building than a child, right? But my question is, can the car actually figure that out under high degree of uncertainty? Well, I'm sorry to say there may be some people on this earth who would rather save their own life and hit the child. (laughs) 
Okay. Well, uh, I'm just saying, I'm just uh, on the average, I think most people. You might be able to program it to do that, I suppose. Right. uh, You could. And and hacking is actually another big issue that I think we're not getting enough um, discussion about. But the censors themselves, uh, there was a big discussion. Even in Pittsburgh, the mayor did not talk about how difficult it was for the cars to detect a bridge. The way that the bridges are built, the metal structures, the fact that they're not composites, you know, they're not whole structures, confuses the car. And so if we're at a place in time where cars cannot see bridges and detect them accurately, they can't they can't tell some pedestrians from bicyclists, for example. If the car can't actually see the world for what it really is, then how can we ever expect it to make these ethical decisions? Yeah, and, and can anyone help me with, with the insurance aspects of this? If, if you're in a a semi-autonomous car and it, it, you know, you're, you're in that autopilot mode and it, it hits someone and, and kills them. Who's can, liable, the yeah. driver or the company or the people who made the car? I can pick up on that. So we're actually working on these these issues with insurance companies under a principle we called uh, the meaningful human control. So the hypothesis that we use is that in, in any system, any automated system which can involve uh, life and death, uh, ultimately there needs to be a human decision maker somewhere in the decision chain in order to, to have the responsibility and accountability clear. So this is what's needed in regulation, but this is also needed uh, for insurance companies. And that means, for instance, that uh, as long as you're in level two automation, it's always the driver who should be responsible and accountable for the control and we need to design the systems that will allow the driver to do that. And currently, I think not all the systems are designed in, in, in that way. But, Professor, that doesn't seem right to me. If, if, if you're in a situation where, you know, in that Florida case which, which killed that Tesla driver and it mistook the sky for a, for a truck, I mean, let's say that it killed someone else uh, and it was a software problem, then that's a company problem, not the driver's problem, isn't it? Um, Yes, so there could be uh, these type of of issues. You could have a a flat flat tire or other... In that sense, it's technology like any other technology. And if it fails and you hurt someone, you have an issue on on liability. So when you can show that the technology was not not right, so you still need to take care that that the company provides a proper uh, product that's uh, predictable to the user, that the user is able to learn, and that the user can be expected to intervene when necessary. I, th- I gather that Volvo, for example, has uh, said that it will take on uh, the liability for any accidents that are caused by uh, its cars. And, and so it's guaranteed that. Now, that's a very, very big commitment. Oh, yes. I mean, just just yep. imagine if, if uh, you know, something really badly wrong, uh, bad, bad goes wrong and costs a absolute millions or it could cost the company you know you could have a really major accident or series of accidents so i think that's an enormous commitment and it puts a lot of pressure on the car companies to make sure that the the technology is correct Uh, professor cummings can you can you tell us a bit about the hacking because i I think there has been some hacking in terms of opening the car doors uh by getting into the software because a lot of the software updates come through wi-fi so it's quite possible to get in there and and obviously that could have quite serious security implications if you've got these cars running amok. Uh, so so t- 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 tell us about that and how, how you know, possible it will be to protect against that. Sure. There are multiple access points that I think we need to be thinking about, the least of which is your personal data, your driving data. 
Uh, for example, Tesla does these um, overnight downloads, uploads, and so you know those data streams are basically freely available to anyone who wants them. And of course, the unlocking, locking. But one of the things that we're more concerned about is um, so GPS data is highly vulnerable. It's true for aircraft and it's very true for cars. And all of us right now could go get on the internet and the the drawings are on the internet for how to build a GPS spoofing device. So anyone really can go to Radio Shack or another electronics company and build a GPS spoof device that actually takes over control of a car and actually can make it go to a place that it was not intended. Now, the fidelity of control is not as quite as easy to do as just to build a system to spoof GPS. But if it's that easy to spoof GPS and trick cars into going places that they wouldn't normally go, you know, you, it raises a lot of issues. It raises a lot of issue about the security. You know, your pet to the vet, well, you know, I mean, what if their kid is in that car and then the kid is kidnapped in the car? Or you yourself as an adult, I mean, if you're not paying attention and you won't be, and then somebody wants to take over the car, then how are you going to know that that's going to happen? And these are not issues that are really being addressed in the well, open That's like form. a bad film. You could be, you could be driven, yeah, you could be locked in the car and driven off somewhere. That technology exists today. Right. And, and just with your mentioning of GPS, I did wonder when you said that, you know, in, they, they can't recognise bridges. Uh, you know, see, GPS technology has mapped the whole of the UK, the whole of the United States and many other countries as well. So surely using that technology, isn't it possible to tell the car, you know, you're on that particular bridge in Pittsburgh? Yes. And so that's actually it's a it's a backup form. And in fact, that's what the cars do. They'll they'll see the world. They'll sense the world through their cameras and then they'll try to match it to their internal map. But one of the problems that we see in cities and with big buildings and a lot of metal, actually, there are, there are GPS. You get these urban canyons where you don't actually get reliable GPS signal. And it's at those points where a car might think that it's just 50 feet from a place that it is not, but because the GPS signal is unreliable, then that's actually where big accidents could happen, right? And so the GPS signal is not as reliable as people think it is. OK, Professor Bart Van Arum, let's just move this on from cars. We've been talking about cars. We did talk about trucks as well, a possible convoy of trucks in, in the UK. What other vehicles and what other applications is there for this technology? Wow, there's a, a huge amount of applications. I'm talking to people from public transport uh, quite regularly because they see driverless vehicles potentially as a threat. So um, if everybody would like uh, likes these vehicles, then their position in, in public transport could be in, uh, in danger. But what we see is that, especially for last mile transportation, these companies are very, very interested to attract additional travelers, especially in locations where there may not be a taxi or um, it may be too far to, uh, to walk. There they are considering in having these, uh, these automated vehicles for last mile transportation. Um, I know also that people are thinking on city distribution for uh, automated, automated cars. Um, and again, you need to make sure it's secure, that nobody steals your cargo and, uh, and that you don't hit any, uh, any other people. Um, third option is, for instance, in, in road maintenance vehicles. So if you employ technology, this is one of the most dangerous professions that, uh, that, that exist. So uh, road workers. So if you can do that with automation or possibly uh, with remote control technology, uh, this could make this road works much, much safer. So and there's um, lots of other uh, applications, maybe niche applications, communication with traffic lights in, in, in cities. 
um, uh, the platooning application with uh, where you communicate between vehicles. So uh, there's a lot ahead. I mean, I mean interestingly enough, a, a lot of those are, are niche. And, and I think one issue we've, we've missed totally here is what is all this about? What, what is the, the problem that driverless cars are trying to solve? Because one problem they certainly don't solve, despite the claims of some uh, car companies, is the issue of congestion. And in fact, the real problem is that driverless cars might make it a lot worse. Because if you have a lot of empty driverless cars with absolutely nobody in it going back home or being sent somewhere, uh, there'll be a lot more congestion on the roads. And and also, uh, as the professor just mentioned, uh, it might well be that people prefer their own type of personal transport rather than public transport. Yeah, but I mean, surely there's a massive gain in, in, in economic productivity if trucks can drive 24 hours a day and go all over Europe, for example, without the need for drivers to sleep. I mean, that would be a big, big win. Yeah, but that's the that's the you know ultimate level five technology, which uh, you know, with all due respect, Owen, is not going to come within our lifetimes, <laughs> and uh, uh, might not even come within our children's lifetimes. I mean, it's it's so far ahead that we really shouldn't be discussing it in terms of transport policy today. I actually I, I disagree with that. that. I, I think we're going to see platooning of trucks, at least in America. And, you know, and I'm working with many groups who do that. I think we will see that sooner rather than later. When you say platooning of trucks, what does that mean? Meaning trucks headed down certain highway stretches uh, on their own, groups of trucks moving along. Right, rather like that British thing with maybe a lead truck with a driver. A- absolutely, just like the lorry situation. And, and, and so give us a timescale on that. When do you think that might happen? Uh, I think we're going to see tests of that in the next five to 10 years. And remember, the thing about the highway driving, at least in the United States, is that these are long stretches of road. We're actually able to insert more sensors into the environment itself. So we actually do have more active control. And you would actually see it like, you know, these trucks are moving, but there'll be a dispatch center with someone remotely monitoring their progress at all times. And because highways are relatively controlled environments, no pedestrians, no bicyclists, there's actually a lot less uncertainty in the environment on the highway, at least here in the United States. Uh, Yes, no, I mean, Owen said dispatching them all around Europe, which I think is would take a lot longer because our roads are are not as sophisticated. But also those, even that, idea has its issue like at some stage you might have to have human drivers taking over this platoon of trucks so you'd have to have centers where these human drivers are waiting to take them to the final destination and and so on will it be economically worthwhile i think that's correct but i actually think it will be economically i think the business case is there you could have trucks just as um, someone just said about 24 7 you could have trucks going from la to new york and in you know 40 miles outside of each city stop and then change and go to a driver who navigates the complexity of a city. And this actually is, it's not only a good economic business case, but truck driving for humans is actually where we see a lot of accidents. It's fatigue is an issue. The drivers in the United States typically break their workday rules. And so uh, I think the platooning truck concept is a big win on all fate. On you've all got a great, uh, you've to, got a great rail network about which I've written a book. <laughs> okay, <laughs> Professor, Professor Bart Van Arum, you're trying to say something. I, yeah, I, I, I want to confer with the, the business case for the truck platooning. We've been doing calculations on, on that with all the freight trip patterns in the Netherlands. And we find that especially trips connected to the port of Rotterdam and to the large distribution centers of uh, supermarkets, they yield viable business cases for truck platooning. 
OK, so finally I'm going to do what we quite often uh, do, and I didn't realise this, basically what you're, I suspect what you're all saying is this truck convoy thing may be the first, first thing to really happen. But uh, talking about the driverless car, the thing that people have in their mind, a car that you literally say, I want to go to the office, and it takes you there. Uh, how long, can you all put a date on it, how far away is that? Right, we'll start with you, Professor Cummings. I think you will see test markets in five years with potential operations in 10 years. Oh, really? I mean, that's super soon from what so. we've been hearing. I and, think so. And that'll be on specific roads, dedicated on ver- roads. On, on very, right, dedicated lanes with extra additional technology layered in those environments. Uh, just one thought on that. If, if, if these roads need this technology in the, in the tarmac, as it were, sensors and various points to steer these things, then who pays for that, actually? Is it the the Googles and the the Ubers, or is it the government? I think it'll be a public-private partnership, so it'll be some of both. Right. Uh, your, your timings, uh, Professor Bart Van Arum. Um, I think we will see Level 2 vehicles in about 10 years. and Level will... 2, just to remind us. Level 2 is adaptive cruise control, so the car does your throttle and the brake and the steering all together. I think the sensors and the actuation will be much better. I think we'll be adding vehicle communication to that, and I think we will be able to address also congestion problems in a very significant way. When it comes to the pet to the vet scenario, so taking anywhere, I don't expect it to see that in my lifetime. So, Christian Volmar, I'm getting the impression you're quite sceptical, but you're hearing t- two uh, you know, people who are, who are by no means sort of gushing enthusiasts for this, saying that you know, there, there could be significant developments in this in the next decade. No, all this is very niche, uh, very experimental, and trials. What is uh, going to take decades, and I mean really, you know, 30, 40 years, is any uh, mass use of cars that do not require a driver where you can actually uh, sit in the back and read the Financial Times, if there is still a Financial Times in those days, uh, and uh, allow the car to take you to your office and then uh, take your kids to school. I wonder even if that will ever happen. I mean, I, I'm old enough to remember comics where uh, in, in the 1960s where you had individual little helicopter things and, and uh, compressed air on the back, uh, little jet rocket pack. engine, jet yes, pack. jet packs that flew you around. And they never happened, and so this might never happen. You can't bring that in at this late stage. <laughs> but thank you very much, Christian Walmer. Thank you, Professor Mary Cummings in Duke University. And thank you to you, Professor Bart van Arum in the Netherlands. Uh, that's it for this week's News Hour Extra. If you would like to listen to the programme again or any other from our archive, then go to bbcworldservice.com forward slash News Hour Extra. If you want to make sure you don't miss any editions and listen to them at your leisure, as it were, at the timing of your choosing, then get the News Hour Extra podcast. And you can tweet me at Owen Bennett Joan, no S, double N, double T, no S, at Owen Bennett Joan and uh, J O N E. And then also you can email us newshour.extra at bbc.co.uk. But for this week, that's it. Thanks very much for listening. And from all of us from Newshour Extra, goodbye. <laughs>